I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. It is good to be with you guys tonight. Um, I'm Mike Winger, and we're going to talk today about how I can and will use the Bible to prove the Bible. Allow me to explain. Um, I did a recent debate, which I was re- I'm really happy with. I think it went very well, and I encourage you guys to check it out. I have a link in the description if you'd like to. And the debate was on the topic of the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Well, when I did this debate, I immediately ran into problems. Um, I mean, before the debate even happened, when people on Twitter and in social media uh, started responding, let me show you what I mean <laughs> by saying this. That, uh, that you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. And so, um, for instance, uh, the, someone during the debate gave a $5 super chat to say, quote, here's their summary of my argument. Mike Winger, the Bible proves the Bible is true. And, um, you know, this, this whole idea, as you can see the tweets I put on the screen for you here, um, and the comments, I should say, that the idea that you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible, well, that is mostly false. That's, that's what I want to say. It's mostly not true. Um, and, and tell me, Hey, if you guys can, you can see me there in the chat, just want to make sure that I'm working. Everything's live and working fine. If you are watching this live, you can put your questions there. I'll answer them at the end of the stream when I've got through the content. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to give you guys one way in which you cannot use the Bible to prove the Bible. And then I'm going to give you seven kind of eight ways that you can use the Bible to prove the Bible. I do think that, um, sometimes those who are skeptical about the Bible, um, are sometimes naive about these issues, and I'm really hoping that this this video is going to help, and that this content is going to just get that truth out to help us have at least a rational conversation. Because in my opinion, rational conversations about Christianity bring people to Christ. And so, um, yes, you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. Are you sure? Because I fully intend to. <laughs> let me let me explain. First off, let me tell you how you can't use the Bible. To prove the Bible. And and this is how you can't use it. You can't use the Bible in the sense of where you say, the Bible says it's the word of God, therefore it's the word of God. That logic doesn't really hold because you can't use it on other things, right? Like if the Book of Mormon says it's the word of God, I can't just believe it. If the Quran says it's the word of God, I can't just believe it. Let me give you an example. Um, This is a quote from the Book of Moses. The Book of Moses, chapter 1, verses 40 and 41. The Book of Moses, this is part of Mormon scriptures. And here's what they say. This is, again, an example of the wrong way to do this. This is is what I think skeptics, I I will agree with you on, right? Um, It says, And now, Moses, my son, I will speak unto thee concerning this earth upon which thou standest. And thou shalt write the things which I shall speak. And in a day when the children of men shall esteem my words as not... And take many of them from the book which you which thou shalt write. Behold, I will raise up another like unto thee, and they shall be had again among the children of men, among as many as believe. And this, um, I'm just gonna make sure it doesn't cut my face off. This, <laughs> this, this uh, verse actually from the book of Moses is is thought in Mormon theology to be a prophecy about Joseph Smith, about how people will corrupt the Bible and Joseph Smith will restore it. There's one problem. Right, Joseph Smith wrote this, not Moses. This was written by Joseph Smith during his lifetime. There's no manuscript of its existence before that. Um, and basically, he made it up. And anytime you have um, a statement, oh, I'm the word of God, or, or this is the word of God, and yet it's just self-fulfilling in that sense. Yes, I agree. You can't do that. Here's another example. This is from the Quran. In the Quran, chapter 61, um, for those that don't know, in the Quran, the, uh, the term for chapter is surah. So in surah 61, Verse 6, this is what Muhammad wrote 
about himself. Right? And I have it up there in the Arabic as well, if you can read that. Um, and, and mentioned when Jesus, the son of Mary, said, O children of Israel, indeed, I am the messenger of Allah to you confirming what came before me of the Torah and bringing good tidings of a messenger to come after me, whose name is Ahmad. Ahmad. But when he came to them with clear evidences, they said, this is obvious magic. Um, the problem with this quote is that Jesus never said that. Right? We have no ancient record of anything re- even not not even in a paraphrase sense, not not even in a in any sense. And then Muhammad Ahmed, that's actually part of Muhammad's name, and so he takes that as being about himself. Of course, Muhammad gave himself that name; that wasn't his birth name. So th- this is exactly what I'm talking about. Like if I just if I just hold up a text and the text says this is the word of God, trust it. Or if it's backdated prophecy, like hey, there's this old prophecy about me, but there's but there is no old prophecy. That's just totally fabricated. That's a problem. I think we can all agree there. Um, we need reason to think that the claim, now the claim is important, it, it, it should claim that it's the word of God, but we need reason to think that claim is true. So me, skeptic, me and you, we're totally on the same page here. That's, that's the wrong kind of using the Bible to prove the Bible. But here are seven, kind of eight ways in which you can and should use the Bible to prove the Bible. The first one is this, historically. You can use the Bible to historically prove that the Bible is true. That is, you get a claim, you get a claim from the Bible, from the text itself, and then you go and you test that claim through outside evidences. For instance, um, it was thought by skeptics for many years that the, um, that the scriptures invented the idea of David, that there was no King David in the Bible ever. And so the scriptures just fabricated this person, this, this whole guy, this basically Israelites just wanted to have like a, you know, this sort of hero king that they could look back upon and say, boy, this guy's a big deal. So in like the 1700s, 15, 16, mostly the 1700s, really German scholarship in the 1700s, they were like, yeah, the Jews just made that guy up. There is no Davidic king until they found this. This was found in Tel Dan, which is basically an archaeological excavation up in northern Israel in a a city, an ancient city called Dan. Um, So this is a stella, which has an inscription upon it. It's not actually of Hebrew origin. It's written by an Aramean king. And it's where he's claiming that he defeated the king of Israel of the house of David. Of the house of David. So we have a secular, or I sh- it, was, it wasn't really secular. It was more pagan than secular. But a, a pagan or non-Jewish source that is saying that the house of David was a legitimate thing. And he defeated them. This was written probably about 841 BC in the 9th century. So we're looking at, you know, a little over 100 years after the time or about 100 years after the time of David. He acknowledges the house of David. What's interesting is when he talks about defeating the king in the north, the king of the northern area, he doesn't acknowledge the house. He just acknowledges the king. This actually mentions eight different biblical kings in this same stella. They found two more pieces uh, the following year, this was found in the 90s, by the way, 1993 and 94 and 95. They were doing this ex- excavation and found this. You can look it up on your own and check it out for yourself on Teldan, T-E-L-D-A-N, excavations.com. You can double check this information all you like. In fact, I'd love it if you would. Um, now, the thing about archaeology is that most events from the past, we don't really know what happened. We don't we don't have any evidence for most of history. When we do find evidence confirming that something in a text is true, that lends credibility to the text. It, it, it gives historicity to the text. There really was a King David, and even pagan kings knew about him. That's pretty neat. 
So the 1700s uh, German scholarship out the door in that regard. Um, they were just making stuff up, in other words. Now there's another example from the time of Jesus. Similarly to what they said about King David, some skeptical scholars had said that the gospel writers invented the character of Pontius Pilate. They just basically wanted a Roman sort of, you know, affirmation that Jesus should not have been crucified. So he's like drug against his will to crucify Jesus. And they just said this was all fabricated. Um, so up until relatively recently, they thought that Pilate just didn't exist and the Bible authors just made him up. Note how oftentimes skeptical scholars will just assume the Bible's not true. They'll just assume it's not true. Other sources are valid, but the Bible's not. That, that is just a bias. It's, and it's not a good, smart bias either. But then they found this. This is the Pilate Stone. In 1961, archaeologists found a stone with a two-foot by three-foot inscription on it. And it says Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea or governor of Judea has presented the Tiberium to the Caesareans. So, you know, he builds the Tiberium and then he presents it to them and the stone is made to commemorate the event. So Pilate existed. I mean, do you think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John carved the stone and laid it in the ground just for us to find in 1961? Like, I don't think that's very likely. Um, they used to say this about a lot of characters of the, of the scriptures, Old and New Testament, that they were just pure, pure invent pure inventions, but we've actually found evidence for other people, Gallio, Epaphras, Caiaphas, Annas, James, the brother of Jesus, Peter, Jesus himself. We have extra biblical evidence for all that. What am I saying? The number one way, the first way you can use the Bible to prove the Bible is to simply get claims from the text and then compare them to extra biblical verifications. And we can do this with lots of different things. We don't expect to prove all of it, but, um, because we don't have most of those things. Um, I think I see someone, I just happened to glance at the chat, asking about the Pilate Stone. The Pilate Stone was was uh, dated to sometime between AD 26 and 36. It's within that window of time. So it actually dates to right around the time of the crucifixion of Christ, or just a little after that. Okay, the second way. The second way that we can actually confirm or use the Bible to prove the Bible is through a discipline called textual criticism. Uh, textual criticism is a really interesting discipline. You see, what we have with the Bible, we don't have the original uh, text as they were written by, by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or, or, or whoever you think wrote those. Um, we don't have the originals. What we have are copies. We have our re reproductions. People copied them down, and then those copies were spread out to different locations. They made copies of those, and we have copies. What's cool is how many copies we have. We have thousands and thousands and thousands of copies. Plus, we can take these copies. We can compare them to each other. We can also take quotes from the early church fathers writing in the first few centuries, we can take their quotes where they quote the Bible, which they quote the Bible a lot. One thing about those guys, if you've ever tried to read the early church fathers, is they wrote profusely. These guys wrote a lot, and it's rather boring and difficult to, all, to read it all. But it's also useful for textual criticism. Um, now, in the 17th century, again, the, uh, they, they were saying that the New Testament authors had written the Gospels, for instance, around like the 200s, AD, 200 years after Jesus, that it was so far removed from Jesus that it was all a bunch of myth and legend and it was all made up. But because of the work of textual criticism, we can take these texts, we can date them, we can locate them, and we can show that every book in our New Testament was written in the first century, within the first century that these things were written by people close to the events and close to the time. That's one of the things we learned from textual criticism. So here I'm using the Bible to prove the Bible. Yes but in a valid way. Also, another thing we learn is this. Some people think the Bible's gone through all these changes. Oh, it's been translated so many times. If only they knew how wrong that statement was. Um, 
the Bible has not gone through all these changes and that's how we can test it, right? Let's say I take a copy of, of a book from say 1100 AD and then I find a copy of the same book from 300 AD and I compare the two, I can see if it's been changed over time. What we see when we compare the thousands and thousands of manuscripts that we have is that we have not had any significant changes to our Bibles over that time. You can trust that John 1 is, you're reading John 1 just as it was written. Um, we, for the most part, the changes are spelling differences, word order variations, things like that. And I remember Bart Ehrman's one of the loudest critics against the Bible in this regard. He wrote his book, Misquoting Jesus, uh, which I have back there somewhere. Um, what's funny is you, you read his book and you don't know that he's giving you the wrong impression. And I think he does it on purpose. I think he's doing it intentionally, but I think he, he says mostly true things, but he says them in such a way to get you to believe things that really aren't true. And, um, that's somewhat deceptive, but I think that's what he does. And, um, Bart Ehrman, uh, I, I saw an interview where he, he was being interviewed by someone who read his book and they were, they had become convinced the Bible has been radically changed. It must, it must read nothing like it did originally. And so they asked him, so what, what really did Jesus say then? You know, what, what, what did really the original, the question was, what did the original gospels actually say about Jesus? And Bart just looked at the guy and said, well, they pretty much said exactly what they say in your Bible now, because he's using a lot of words and things to confuse people. But the conclusion of textual criticism is that the Bible's a faithful account of what it originally was. And also that it's dated much earlier than skeptical scholars used to think. Although on the internet, people are sometimes still stuck in the 1700s and they don't know these things. So I'm hoping that this video might help. Maybe I'll go into more detail. In my series, Evidence for the Bible, I actually do go into a ton of detail. Um, I'd recommend checking that out if you have questions about uh, variations in the text and all that. Um, but no, there's my favorite question for people who say the Bible's been changed so much is to ask him, so where's my theology wrong? What should I believe differently than I do based upon how you think the Bible should read? And they never even answer the question because our theology would be no different because the text has been preserved over time and we have evidence to prove it. So that's textual criticism. Uh, on the flip side, let's take the Quran, for example. Do you know that in about 650 AD, the Quran went through a revision? And this was something that's never happened with the Bible, right? We have ancient copies of the Bible and of, of pieces, manuscripts of portions of the, of the different texts that we can compare. But in about 650 AD, about 20 years or so after the death of Muhammad, um, they went through the Uthman revision. There was this guy, Uthman, who gathered up all the information they had about the Quran. It stated that they had lost some of the Quran, some of the chapters or parts of the Quran. But then what he did was he had competing versions that didn't agree. And so he came and he made a new version of the Quran. And then he burned and destroyed all of the old ones. He burned and destroyed all the old manuscripts so that his version would reign supreme. So um, only one guy's traditions he would he refused to give over what he had so he kept his tradition alive so we actually see that in the manuscript tradition of the quran is uh his stuff but you can tell he edited it as we look at the text so the quran even though it's a later document than the bible has actually a worse textual tradition because you can't show that it's been unchanged the opposite is true so that's the uthman revision you might go go uh, google it and find out for yourself um all right third reason we can use the bible to prove the bible third way. The Bible is a multitude of historical sources. And this is something that seems very simple to, to someone who reads the text and pays attention to the scriptures, but often people miss this point. Do you know the Bible is not really just one book? It's not like some people, maybe they think Jesus wrote the Bible, right? Like 
But no, actually, did you know that the majority of the Bible was written hundreds of years before Jesus ever showed up? And the rest of it was written after Jesus had died and risen. That we've got the, the 39 books of the Old Testament, and we've got the 27 books of the New Testament, and we have over 40 different authors represented in those texts spread out over, over 1,500 years of time. What does that mean? Well, that means that we have a multitude of witnesses talking about different issues. Like when you read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you have multiple attestation of, of, of the same types of historical events. This is what historians want. They want multiple attestation. They want to read multiple witnesses on a particular topic. This is pretty interesting. Also, these witnesses are close to the time. Like in the case of the New Testament, all within the first century. So these are historical criteria for establishing you know, what really happened in the past. They want multiple witnesses and they want them close to the time of the event. So in the New Testament alone, we've got 27 different documents. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these were written by four different authors, not the same person. You know, the, um, Luke wrote, also wrote Acts. We, we know that uh, Paul, we have many of his letters and some people will claim that some of his letters were forged. Uh, I, I don't agree. And one day I will get to this topic when I'm prepared for it. Um, but, but even if you just take the, the, the skeptical views that, that only, you know, I think it's nine of the letters are totally authentic, we have nine first century historical, you know, writings from one of the most important Christians of the first century, Paul. So we've got multiple witnesses near the time of the events, and these are, in fact, our best sources. Even Bart Ehrman, again, that skeptical scholar who just writes book after book attacking the Bible and trying to undermine people's faith, um... This guy, he says that our best sources for knowing things about Jesus are, can you guess? The New Testament. All the New Testament documents, they are our earliest and best sources for knowing things and truths about Jesus. In this regard, I want to debunk a quick myth. When I say that the Gospels are a historical source for, for information about Jesus, there are many out there who think that Jesus, um, who, like the 1700s, you, you're still there. Like you think that the Gospels are myths. Their myths about Jesus instead of what they actually are, which is biographies. So in the earlier 1900s, it was popular views that, that the Gospels were myths, but there was a lot more work done on this topic by scholars. And now scholarly opinion has largely changed and shifted. They do not think the Gospels are myths. They believe they are Roman biographies or bioi. Uh, biographies, is, it's, a, it's a genre or category of writing. So um, the Jesus Seminar, some of you are familiar with them. They're basically um, always interviewed, these guys always interviewed by, um, by liberal shows to try to undermine scripture. <laughs> They're the scholars they always interview. Um, they treated the Gospels as myths, but that, that whole view, their whole approach to the Gospels has been pretty much replaced by a new one. So Graham Stanton, a New Testament scholar from King's College, London, he says this, I do not think, and I quote, I do not think it is now possible to deny that the Gospels are a subset of the broad ancient literary genre of lives, that is, biographies. Let me give you another quote. David Ahn is the um, American New Testament scholar, an American New Testament scholar, excuse me. He's the Emeritus Walter Professor of New Testament and Christian Origins at the University of Notre Dame. Of Notre Dame. So that's a very, very respect, respectable location, right? Um on, he studied at Wheaton College, the University of Minnesota, and the University of Chicago. You could look up his stuff online as well. But here's his quote regarding what, what really are the Gospels? Like, are they historical in nature or are they myth in nature? He says this, While biography tended to emphasize 
uh, encomium or the one-sided praise of the subject. It, it was definitely biased, but that doesn't mean it was wrong. It just means it had a goal. Um, it was still, and I continue the quote here, it was still firmly rooted in historical fact rather than literary fiction. Thus, while the evangelists clearly had an important theological agenda, the very fact that they chose to adapt Greco-Roman biographical conventions to tell the story of Jesus indicated that they were centrally concerned to communicate what they thought really happened. And that is the state of modern current scholarship on the topic, right? They, they were trying to give us what actually happened. That's the idea. And, and to be honest, you don't need to be a scholar to know this. Just read Luke, read Matthew, Mark. These are obviously not writing as myths. They're just matter-of-fact accounts of the life of, and teachings of Jesus. That's how they read. Um, it's, it just seems to me as though scholarship in this place, in this case, caught up with common sense. You just read the text, man. Um, fourth reason, fourth way, I should say, you can use the Bible to prove the Bible. And again, put your, if you're watching live, put your, on YouTube, put your questions in the comments and I will, uh, I will bring those, try to give you best answers I can uh, with whatever knowledge I might have on those issues. Uh, number four, searching for a plausible historical reconstruction. Okay, this, this is to say, if you, if you were to approach the Bible as a historian who says, I won't assume that it's all God's inspired word, I'll just look at it as those historical documents. And what I'll do then is I'll use my, my historical tool bag to try to analyze it the way I analyze, you know, biographies about the life of Alexander the Great, biographies about the life of the Caesars. You know, I'm just going to analyze these, these stories of Jesus the way I analyze those. And I'm going to look for that historical core. Now, this is like well-tread ground. Scholars have spent quite a lot of time doing this sort of thing. And even the skeptical scholars will generally agree. In fact, there's consensus. That means over 90% of scholars agree on certain topics. So I'm going to give you a list of some of these topics there's agreement on. One, Jesus existed. They're, they agree. They pretty much almost down the line, every one of them agrees. Except for, and you can name them, right? If you're like, no, they don't all agree. I know a scholar that doesn't. If his name ends with price or carrier, that's because there's only a very small minority. And I mean, you, you could fit them all in a small bathroom together of scholars that don't agree on this topic. Yes, Jesus existed. They all agree on that. Um, they also agree that Jesus was baptized by John. And part of this, what establishes this is that whole idea of it was, it was just, it's considered awkward or embarrassing to the later Christians that Jesus had to undergo baptism. And so he was baptized. So it's explained in the text, you know, John goes, oh, don't baptize. I don't want to baptize you. I sh you should baptize me. And Jesus says, no, 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 let it, you know, to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, not for repentance, but to fulfill righteousness, let it be so. So the baptism of John, that there was this real John character, that he really baptized Jesus, that he really proclaimed him. This connection between Jesus and John also agreed on by the consensus. Um, in my recent debate with, with uh, Paul Ogia on the topic of the resurrection, I left out a lot of these facts because I just was trying to narrow our focus down. I just picked three of them and then added a fourth. Um, but, uh, but I'll give you some extra ones today. Um, it's agreed, there's a consensus that agrees that the popular view of Jesus was that he was thought to be a miracle worker and an exorcist. Now you see how they're careful how they word it. They don't want to say Jesus really was a miracle worker. Jesus really was an exorcist. But they, but they can look at the text and they go, well, here's what we can confirm. People definitely thought he was. There was a view during his ministry, his three-year ministry, that he really was doing miracles and, um, and performing exorcisms. They, that's, so baptism by, he existed, baptized by John, thought to be miracle worker and exorcist. And here's an interesting kind of, eh, it's a little hard to grab, but I'll just share it with you. It's Jesus saw himself as God's eschatological agent. That is, 
that Jesus viewed himself as somehow bringing in the kingdom of God. Um, that that was Jesus's own opinion of himself. Here's another consensus agreement. If you just look at the text, trying to uh, look at what can we very reliably say for sure did happen. This is not even as, a, as Christians looking at the text, right? This is just looking at the text uh, as maybe even an unbelieving historian might. So Jesus saw himself as God's eschatological agent, bringing in the kingdom of God. Another fact they all agree on, Christ was crucified. Jesus was crucified. That really did happen under Pontius Pilate. It really happened. Another fact they agree on is that the claims of the disciples that they saw Jesus alive from the dead, that those claims were really happening, they really claimed it, and that they really believed it. Now, this blows me away that there's there's enough historical data preserved from the first century, 2,000 years ago, that they can agree on all these facts about Jesus that all point towards who he really is. Um, also, the conversion of Paul. They agree on this. Consists that Paul, Paul really did convert as a result of what he at least thought was an appearance of Christ to him. So... Um, then, of course, there's a majority that agree on the empty tomb, that the, that Jesus had a proper burial um, by Joseph of Arimathea, and the tomb was later found empty. There's a majority of scholars that agree on that. Now, when you put all these facts together, you go, you go, look at how many of the core issues are established by just historical research, a historical reconstruction um, that, that rules out and doesn't even consider things like the miraculous and all that. So I, I think that's pretty exciting. So that's the fourth way we can use the Bible to prove the Bible. The fifth way is this, prophecy. The fifth way is prophecy. Um, so we have prophecy in the Bible of Jesus' crucifixion in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 52 and 53. We, we Not only of his crucifixion, but his, his triumph over it afterwards, which implies resurrection of his the, this message of the, of the cross being preached to the whole world. All that's in Psalm 22. We have things like the destruction of Tyre in Ezekiel 26. I actually have videos on all this on my evidence for the Bible series. Um, there are lots of prophecies in the scriptures that we can look to and say, this isn't just historical evidence, guys. We're saying the Bible has texts that were written before events happened, not like the Quran, not like the book of Moses, right? Where you write it after and you say, oh yeah, this predicts me, but you're the one writing it. No, no, no. We know that Ezekiel was written before. We know Isaiah and Psalm 22 were written before. We have copies of them from before Jesus, right? So these were written before him. Um, then we look at the cross and we go, boy, this really matches and this is where the historical case comes in, because Psalm 22 does does seem to describe crucifixion before it was invented, yet the historical evidence suggests Jesus really was crucified. So it's not like they looked at Psalm 22 and made up the crucifixion. Rather, they looked at the crucifixion and they said, hey, Psalm 22, Jesus really did go through that. So that that's another case we can build there. Um, and th this is kind of like... Uh, it's, it's like looking at a $100 bill. You know, if you, if you see a $100 bill and you want to analyze if it's real, there's several ways you can test it, right? One of the ways you can test it is you hold it to a light and you look for the hologram. This is for United States money, right? Um, another way is there's a little strip in there and that says 100 US, 100 US, you know, up and down that strip and that confirms it's a, it's a real $100 bill. You look for the little colored threads. Another, another way to test it um, is to actually take your thumbnail and drag it on the ribs of the coat, of the president on the bill, and if it if you're if you feel the texture, the bouncing of your nail on those on the ribs of that coat, then that's another way to test it. They also have micro printing, really tiny printing that you can look at it with a magnifying glass that most printers are incapable of. They also don't allow other people to use that same color for money. There's the there's the feel test. There's all these different tests. Well, with the Bible, if I'm going to say that this is not only historically accurate, but that God actually inspired the scriptures then I'm going to need to show that it has, it passes the test. 
And the test here is going to be prophecy or the idea that God knows the future ahead of time and he tells us about it in the text, which man is simply not capable of doing. So this becomes strong evidence that it's actually inspired of God. Um, and you have to use the Bible to do this, but you're not assuming it's true. You're just using it to test. Number six, number six, um, the idea of number six, so the way, the sixth way you use the Bible to prove the Bible is unity. The idea of unity or meta narrative. Let me explain. There are, um, there are several indicators throughout these 66 different books by different authors over hundreds and even over a thousand years of, of, of time to write it, different languages even, um, there's several things that are consistent between them that demonstrate that there's cohesion and at least historical accuracy, but it goes a step further. Let me explain. First, there's something called undesigned coincidences. Um, this is actually evidence that I've, I still want to do more study in, and one day I want to bring some videos to talk about undesigned coincidences in detail. But I'll give you one example, and let me, uh, let me actually take you to the text. So... Uh, Here's an example from Mark 14, Mark 14, 55. It's from the, um, the trial of Jesus. So they're trying to find a way amongst the Jews, right? He's in front, he's, he had trials amongst Jews and amongst, gen, amongst Gentiles. Here he's amongst the Jews. And they're trying to find a way to crucify Christ, right? Find something he's guilty of. And they've got to get witnesses who agree, multiple witnesses who agree on an accusation. That's how Jewish court works. So in verse 55, it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. They've got to have two independent witnesses who both say the same thing, and these people weren't agreeing with each other. Um, so they had some controls to make sure against false accusations. And then in verse 57, we have this interesting phrase that Mark never explains. From, um, oh, And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple... That's that Jewish temple, the most important thing to the Jew at the time, um, that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So multiple came up and said, Jesus made some sort of statement about destroying the temple, but their statements disagreed. They couldn't agree on it. Now, it never explains this. Mark never explains this. This is also in Matthew. It's never explained, right? And then in John, we have a situation where it's explained, What's interesting, though, is John doesn't even include the trial where they accuse Jesus of these things. But he, he offers us an undesigned coincidence that explains Mark. So in John 2.18, it says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said to him, right? Now, now it's actually a history of Jesus' life. He, he said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it. They get confused. They say it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, um, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So here, this is just simply an undesigned coincidence. You're going to, now, someone might say, John did that purposely because John was really concerned with making sure that his account fit with Mark's perfectly. Yet the same skeptic who says this will then turn around and say that John and Mark totally contradict all the time. But you can't have it both ways. You can't tell me they colluded together to create undesigned coincidences and they totally contradict in obvious ways. Like now I say, I think thou dost protesteth too much. You know, this is, this is revealing that there's something else going on. Now, the real strength of this undesigned coincidence case is when you give not 10, not 20, but 100 
of, of these examples throughout the different books of scriptures. And Bible teachers know this because we find these all the time. When I'm teaching one gospel and I reference another, when I'm teaching First uh, Chronicles and I, I reference First Kings, um, and I see these coincidences, uh, that's one example. Now, what does that include uh, or what does that suggest? It suggests that there's like a historicity to these things. Uh, when you're telling real stories, you'll expect these undesigned coincidences to come out because you're actually telling what really happened. So it, enc it encourages us to trust the, the hist historicity of the text. There's another example, though. Meta-narrative. What's meta-narrative? Um, meta-narrative is this. It's like, you know, when you watch these TV shows and they have a whole season and the season has like, say, 12 or 20 episodes or whatever. And there's like this story arch or arc that goes through the whole season and it kind of comes to a, a, a nice, like, satisfying conclusion at the end where all these different points come together. Now, good writers will actually plan from the first episode how the last episode will end. They'll actually lay out plot lines in the first episode that they will conclude in the final episode. That's a meta-narrative. Within that, each episode has its own little story arc that goes on. And the Bible's kind of like this, right? Genesis has its own story arc. Exodus has its, you know, uh, Jeremiah has his story arc. Matthew has a story arc. But the Bible as a whole, the 66 books, has its whole story arc. And that could only be designed by someone who had the whole story in mind from the beginning. An example of how this fails, right, is uh, Star Wars. In Star Wars, the first movie in the series, it's like episode four, um, in the first movie, if you ever watch it again, go watch Darth Vader and ask me, or ask yourself, who do you think this guy really is? Because Darth Vader is actually not as in charge, he's not as cool, and he doesn't seem to be this Anakin Skywalker character at all. It's, it's in the second movie and the third movie that they figured that out. So the plot was added later. But with the text of the Bible, we don't get this idea that Jesus is like a, a, a later edition. We get the idea that Jesus is part of the meta-narrative. This whole concept of, that God was giving us this story from the beginning. Let me give you some examples now that I've hopefully explained that in a thoughtful way. Um, uh, Jesus is seen in something called typology. In typology, he's, he's seen throughout the text of the Old Testament pictures, not just prophecies, because prophecies are very direct, like this will happen kind of thing. And, and obviously the, the Jews knew this. They believed in a Messiah. They thought a Messiah was coming. They expected a Messiah, even, even if it hadn't been Jesus, they thought some Messiah is coming. But they saw G, uh, the Messiah not only in the direct prophecies of the Old Testament, but in the pictures and the types of the Old Testament. They thought that the entire Old Testament was about Messiah. That wasn't just something Christians thought. It was, it's a Jewish belief. It's still a Jewish belief, actually, today. So, for instance, Jesus is the seed of the woman that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. Um, he's the angel of the Lord we read about in multiple places throughout the scriptures. Um, he is a priest like Melchizedek, this random, confusing passage that Jesus explains. He's the prophet like unto Moses that the Bible predicts will come. He's lifted up like the bronze serpent. You know, he's the rock that was struck. He's like Joseph betrayed by his brothers into a terrible fate so that he might save them in the long run. Um, he is like the great high priest. He's the kinsman redeemer. He's the Davidic king. He is the last Adam. Do you, do you see, it's not that there's just one meta-narrative concept. It's rather that there are, there's like a thousand of these things. So I go into great detail in this in my Jesus in the Old Testament series. If you haven't seen it, I put a link in the video description. You're welcome to check this out. This is, again, a cumulative thing. Um, I don't offer this usually as, as, a, as evidence for Christ because I can't explain it in five minutes, right? It takes a lot longer than that. So I have 
a video series I'm producing that gives all this stuff. And that is, um, uh, I'm still producing it, but I've got like, I don't know, 12 or 13 already in the series. And I got the link there for you if you'd like to see it. Now, some would say, Mike, you know, you're just, you're just trying to make it fit. You're just looking into the Old Testament and finding Jesus where he isn't. But here's the problem. In many of these Old Testament things, they already were looking for the Messiah to look like that. And Jesus fulfilled it. Then there's another problem, which is this. You pick another character in history and try to find as robust of a meta-narrative in the Old Testament as you can for Jesus. Really try it. Don't just pick some random one story of the Old Testament and say it's like so-and-so. But try to see if it's anywhere near as robust as the one for Jesus. Because it's an actual meta-narrative. It really is a theme through the text of scriptures. It's, it's amazing. So that's one way, to, another way to use the scripture to prove the scripture. Um, and then number seven, seventh way you can use the Bible to prove the Bible. And this is, um, to some, this will not matter, but to others, it will probably matter more than the rest of the things I've shared with you. Um, and that's experientially. The Bible actually doesn't just give us data and information. It calls us to believe and live in certain ways. And when you do this, you find out how true it is. When you live the scriptures, you find out how true it is. Let me give you an example. Um, marriage. In my family, um, marriage, marriages don't last. Okay? You know, they say divorce rates are 50%. Divorce rates among my family, the traditions we came from, are more like 95%. And I'm not exaggerating. It's pretty serious. Pretty bad stuff. When I got married, I did one thing that I don't think anybody in my family did. Um, and I said, I'm going to follow the Bible and the Bible's rules on marriage. And I'm going to do what this says and I'm going to trust it. And we just, let's see, we're going on 10 years coming up. <laughs> and things are going great. And our marriage is fantastic. And um, I think my wife would actually agree with me on that. I'm not just blowing smoke. But the reason it's great is because we're following what the text actually says. Because experientially, when you live this out, it's true about life. It's actually true about life. When you, when you talk about the Bible's characterization of the internal battles and struggles and psychological problems of mankind, it's spot on. When you read the book of Proverbs and try to live out the wisdom it gives, it blesses your life. Like, it's just, it's true from every angle. That's why you've got to use the Bible to prove the Bible here. Um, man, I just, I dare you to live it out. I love challenging people to live out their worldviews. Actually, I, I really do. I, I'll tell you a story, a uh, true story. We were witnessing in the park near my church and I met a guy there who believed that reality was an illusion. And he said that he was, he was walking around the park with a metal detector, right? And, um, and so he wanted to talk. He just had nothing going on. So we talked for about 45 minutes or so. He told me that reality was a total illusion that, that, um, there was no we, there was only I, and that, I know it sounds confusing, but he, he was like, he was like, Mike, you're me and I'm you and the tree is, is, uh, is us and, and it's all, it's all me. So he believed that like all of creation was just one being and all this stuff was all just illusory. So what I like to do with people who give me crazy worldviews is encourage them to actually try to live it out. So I try to convince him, like, you don't even believe this, right? And he says to me, no, I really believe it. Well, then a little kid walks up and says, hey, mister, I lost my necklace. Can I use your metal detector? And the guy turns to the kid and says, no, only I can use my metal detector. And I thought, wait a minute. Why did you just tell you that you can't use you if everything's you? <laughs> like, it doesn't make sense. So I told him, you know your worldview's not true. Turns out, this guy, by the way, had a, a wife and kids at home, and he was living on the street and had quit his job because of all this craziness. So I encouraged him. I said, I want you to you actually live out your worldview. I said, if you really think you don't need any of these things, and you don't even need to eat, 
You don't, you don't need a coat. You don't need your metal detector. You don't need your backpack. I said, can I have all your stuff? And I did not want all his stuff, but I wanted to get him to live his worldview out. He gives me all his stuff. I'm not kidding. He gives me his metal detector. Gives me his backpack with a sandwich in it. Gives me everything he's got. His jacket. It was cold, too. And then I just walked to my car, and I said, I'm going to go to my car now. And I said, I'm actually going to put this stuff in my car and drive away. I said, I'm not stealing it from you. You've given it to me, and I'm, I'm not going to take it. I said, in fact, I don't even want to take your stuff. I just want you to know your worldview is not true. And then I told him the address of my church, and I said, I'll be there for a few hours. If you change your mind, come pick up your stuff. And I drove off and took his stuff. Everybody else was like, what are you doing, Mike? Well, about, I don't know, an hour later, uh, he, he rode by, and he found us outside the church. And he goes, I need my stuff. I'm, I'm not at that level yet. I can't handle it yet. I need my stuff. And so I gave him all his stuff back. And I just thought, like, man, you know your worldview, you, your worldview is not true. You can't live it out. And I would say, as crazy as this guy's worldview was, and his refusal to live it out, proving that he's, he's pretending, he's faking to believe things that even he knows aren't true, I would say that sometimes that's what I see in atheism. In atheism, when we pretend that there's moral values and we pretend there's purpose and beauty and there's, uh, there, there's all these concepts that don't fit that worldview, I think that that's the atheist telling me, I know my worldview doesn't work, but I just can't, I can't handle it. I can't handle living this thing out like it's real. And so, and I'm glad they don't. I'd rather them not. But I think that it should show you when you try to really live out your worldview, it should show you that it's either true or not true. And in this case, when I really live out Christianity, I find that, I find that it's true. And in so many of the testimonies of skeptics who've left the faith, when they describe the Christianity they lived before they left, oftentimes I look at that and I go, that doesn't even really sound like biblical Christianity to me. Um, and I wonder, I wonder. So the seventh way you use the Bible to test the Bible is like read it and do it and watch the impact in your life. And then I'll say that there's an eighth way that is kind of like um, sort of, I don't know if I would really count this or not. I'll leave it up to you. And that is to just look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. You're going to find the truth and testimony of Christ in the scriptures, in, in, in the Bible. So look at who Jesus is. Read his words. Consider this person who is a real person who really lived, who even the skeptical scholars agree really was baptized by John, really was thought to be a worker of miracles and an exorcist, who really thought of himself as bringing the kingdom of God, um, who really was crucified under Pontius Pilate, who really, the disciples really believed they saw him alive from the dead, who most likely was really buried in a tomb that was later found empty. Look at this guy. Look at that Jesus for yourself and see if just in studying who he is and looking at his words, it doesn't um, it doesn't reveal something to you. So, yes, you can use the Bible to prove the Bible. In fact, you have to. Um, it's just like saying, you know, you can't use, um, you know, a pogo stick to prove that pogo sticks work. Yeah, you've got to jump up and down on this thing <laughs> to find out if it works. So, um, I'm going to go to your guys' questions. That's what I had to share with you guys. Um, uh, so, I'll, AJ, send those on over when you can. And if you guys have, have other questions you haven't asked yet, you can put those in the comments. AJ's like my filter. He decides what questions I will be getting from you guys or not. He knows which questions I get every single time and which questions are on or off topic. And so I leave it up to him. Um, so, he, he, I'm good cop. He's bad cop. <laughs> um, now, uh, while you're sending those questions over, AJ, uh, let, me, let me say um, that I encourage you guys to check out my debate with Paulo Gia. Um, it's in the video description. It's, it's a debate over the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. And I'd love your feedback on it and your thoughts on it. 
Um, it was on a secular, uh, or I should say an atheist-focused YouTube channel, atheist-leaning YouTube channel with primarily skeptics and non-believers as their audience, which excites me to get to reach out to that many people. I studied uh, quite, a, quite a lot of hours preparing for that. Um, it, it was quite a lot of hours. It was in the triple digits for sure. And, um, and what I want to do now is over the next, I don't know, months, I'm going to take some of the content I learned and prepped and refresh myself on and study for that debate. And I'm going to bring it to you guys. And I think that you will find that it's useful in your discussions about the truth of Jesus Christ. So, um, here we go. First question from Ryan White says, um, I feel a strong call towards full-time ministry. The problem is I feel completely unworthy and underqualified. How does one tell if he's fooling himself about ministry? Um, there's a sense, Ryan, in which you, uh, it's right that you feel unworthy. Um, now I, I don't know your whole situation and all that, of course, but if you wait until your life is perfect before you serve the Lord, it ends up being an excuse to never serve the Lord because you're never going to be, you're never going to have everything right. Um, but you can have your, your heart right. You can have your, your mind right, focused upon the right things and growing and thriving in the Lord, you know, and that's really important. Character is central to this, but, but perfection is something that we, we strive towards, but we really aren't going to see until the resurrection. So I would say, um, it's totally okay to feel unworthy and underqualified if it causes you to be dependent and doesn't become an excuse to fail. You know what I mean? Let it cause you to be in prayer more. Let it cause you to be more more concerned about your own shortcomings so that you're leaning upon God, you're dependent upon God. I am, through my entire life in ministry, I'm always going into things where I'm going, I don't know how to do that. I'm not ready for that. But I'm going to seek to just do one, one thing and that's be faithful. So that's my encouragement to you is just, be faithful. If you can say, hey, I'm, I don't know how qualified I am, but I can be faithful. I can, I can faithfully give all I got for it. Um, then I think you're in a good place. And, um, and scripture says he who desires that position of a bishop desires a good work. So if that's your desire, that's a good thing you're desiring. Why not read first Timothy three? Uh, I think it's first Timothy three and see those qualifications and start, you know, setting those at the forefront of your mind. Um, from, from Pine Creek. Hi, Doug. Good to see, good to see, I said, I was going to say see you, but I don't see you. Good to read your writings um, as reproduced by A.J. Bernard. Um, question, if a different holy text has archaeological evidence supporting a claim, does that mean all the claims are true and support historicity of that text? Definitely not. Um, this, this seems trivial to me, honestly. <laughs> um, yes. If you have support for one claim, does it mean every other claim in the text is automatically true? No, that would be a very sort of naive way of looking at it. And that's definitely not what I'm promoting. Um, yeah. And another, let's see, we have two questions from Doug. Second one is, is it reasonable to say that some claims in the Bible are probably true and some claims are probably false? Well, that depends on what you think the Bible is. So if you go about the Bible and say, I'm just going to assume it's just a historical text. Well, then it's reasonable to think some of the things in it might be true. Some of the things might be false. But if we go through the work of proving that the Bible is inspired of God, like God inspired the text of scripture, like if you can actually demonstrate that, and I think we can, um, and I think I have on my evidence for the Bible series, then it's not really reasonable now to think that it's mistaken, is it? It actually starts to become unreasonable to think that it would be wrong because if it is sourced in God, I would expect it to be true because God is reliable. God is dependable. 
and um, and any argument against God being reliable and dependable would seem to be less reasonable than the the other side of the issue. Um, so yeah, it depends on how you approach it. Now, if you if you find that the text really is inspired, then all of a sudden it gains authority over you. Um, Mark Kenny has a question. My biggest obstacle with people is that they treat the Bible like a buffet table. They take what they like and they leave what they don't like. They make themselves the final word. And that is, um, that is absolutely the case. I think sometimes we just want to, we want what we want and we want to keep things the way that they've always been for us. That's dangerous. I've always got to approach, approach the scriptures as a Christian by saying, I'm going to let this be the authority over what I think here, over how I behave here. I'm going to let the Bible be the authority that, you know, of God speaking to me on those issues. So I'm always going to be approaching it willing to change. And any other perspective where I'm like, the Bible has to fit all my traditions, it has to agree with my convictions and my opinions is, is, is ultimately going to lead us to folly. Um, Matt Bell. Uh, the Passion Translation, with uh, with the Passion Translation cl- clearly being a distortion of God's word, has Bethel's Bethel Church's close link to, oh, close link to, sorry, there's English language for you. Close and close are like the same thing. So, um, okay, so because the Passion Translation is obviously a distortion, which it is, and I have videos on that, um, has Bethel Church's close link to and promotion of the Passion Translation changed your view on their movement? Um, I, I will say, you know, my view on on the things coming out of Bethel and that I see there is is growing. In, I, I just have gone increasingly concerned since I made my original video on Bill Johnson. That's become very, very well known now. Um, my views are that things that I was worried about, I'm still worried about. And things that I didn't know about, I now know about and I am worried about. It, it's like I'm more and more concerned about the increasing confirmation of problems that I see that are going on there. And so, yeah, I, I definitely, yeah, I'm, I'm still in process learning these things. I don't spend all my time studying Bill Johnson. Uh, I did for a video, but, but yeah, but that is my view. Uh, let's see, where are we now? Um, number six, Keith Allerton says, will you ever make a video addressing the black Hebrew Israelites? I'm not really sure Keith, but I have received several requests for that. And it's, it's like on my list of things to consider, but I would probably have to do a lot of work. And so sometimes things that require extra work, I have to put those off further for, you know, weeks and seasons where I, I just have that big giant block of time to invest in it. So I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm sorry to not be able to give you a better answer. Uh, another question from Doug. Does Mike agree with Christian historian Mike Lycona that we may not have the words of Jesus, but only the gist? Well, well, I, I would say yes, I do. But I think that this is something that Doug might, you might misunderstand me or perhaps someone else might misunderstand me. Um, do I think that the red letters are always verbatim quotes? That's to me the question. And the answer is no, I don't think the red letters are always verbatim quotes. I think that sometimes Jesus is being paraphrased uh, and sometimes he's being quoted directly. But I do think they're faithfully recording what Jesus said and what Jesus intended. Um, but but no, I don't think that every every time... Uh, the letters are in red, which are added by us for convenience, right? We, we made those letters red. I don't think that that means it's always a quote. In fact, in the Greek, there is there are literally no quotation marks. That's something we add in the English. It's an English convention. We put it in there. It helps us out. It really does. But, you know, in some places, like in John chapter 3, there's a debate over 
when did Jesus stop talking and John start giving commentary that I believe was fully inspired by the Holy Spirit? But, but at what point was John speaking and or writing, you know, his own explanations and Jesus speaking? Where does that transition happen? Is it after John 3.16? Is it after John 3.19? Is it, is it later? Um, that's it. Look at John 3 yourself and ask yourself, if these letters weren't read, you know, where would I try to say that's where Jesus stopped talking? It's a good question. I, I don't I don't know always the answer to those things. Um, but it doesn't doesn't worry me or concern me. I, I trust that we have God's inspired word there. Um, number eight here. Nicholas DeHaan. Can you ask Mike for his sources on that Jesus was thought to be a miracle worker and Jesus believed he was an eschatological agent as well as the tomb stuff? Um, um, I'm trying to think of what I can give you just off the top of my head. Um, Mike Lycona did a really good book uh, for this content. It's really long and involved and it's, um, uh, it's the resurrection of Jesus, a historiographical approach. I think that's the title of the book. You'll find it if you Google it. Um, Lycona is L I C O N A. And he, he gathers these things and he quotes different scholars, various scholars to support those claims. And so he's, he himself is a historian in, in that area. So, um, so I would, I would reference to Mike Lycona and his work. Uh, it's in the, Let's see, the opening chapters of the book are about how to do history and historical horizons and stuff. It's like maybe chapter three where he starts dealing with historical bedrock. That's the chapter you want to read. The historical bedrock chapter is, is, is where he uh, talks about a lot of that. Um, Judah Matthews has a question. Mike, what do you think of 1 Corinthians 1 and 2? Is it saying that apologetics empties the cross of its power, making faith rest on human wisdom and not on the power of God? Etc. So let's just look at First Corinthians one and two. Here, let me bring up the Bible. So First Corinthians chapter one verse one, he says, um, "Let me make sure I did get the right reference there." Oh, First Corinthians chapters one and two. Um, okay, I'm obviously not going to read the whole chapters right now. Um, let me go to where I think you're going. Okay, verse 17. So, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent, eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Um, I think that here, Paul, some people say that in 1 Corinthians, sorry, I'm moving everything around. In 1 Corinthians, Paul, uh, he went to Athens, and then he went to Corinth, and that in Acts in Athens, he debates with the wise, like the smarty pants people. And then in Corinth, he decides, I'm not going to do the debating and the wisdom stuff anymore. Um, and so he, he comes against what he did in Athens. And so then we have kind of like this, this bad example in Athens and a good example in Corinth. I disagree. I don't think that that's warranted in the studying of the text. I think that that's a bad hermeneutic. Uh, what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 1.17 is, I didn't merely persuade you with words. It wasn't merely, now you can use words and you can use persuasion. And we have the, look up the word persuade and reason in the Gospels and Acts in particular. Just look it up. Just Google search, you know, the word reason um, and reasoned and reasoning um, and yeah, all that sort of thing. And you'll see plenty of examples of them doing this. So he's not saying I don't use like smart words, but he says, that's not how I got you, right? It was, it was, I gave you the gospel. The gospel had its work in your, in your life. You may have your ears perked and pricked by some thoughtful, smart, you know, apologetics, but ultimately is going to be knowing Jesus died on the cross for you. You and your sin issues before God can be resolved, but only if you come through Christ. Like this is just, you've got to eventually come to the gospel message. It's not the thing that saves you, the apologetics. Apologetics, I look at as like the jaws of life, the crowbar that, 
that opens the door so they can get the person out of the car to safety, but it's not the thing that actually saves anybody. Um, yeah. So, um, yes, it's ultimately, it's the cross of Christ. It's the gospel, the simple message. That's what saves. So he goes on and talks a lot more in first and second Corinthians. Um, one of these days I'll do more. I'll do a whole video on is, is apologetics biblical. And I'll talk about that issue because I think it's relevant. Uh, but there's a, a quick response I hope is helpful to you. Austin Abenaki says, um, will you be doing any debates on Calvinism, perhaps with James White or Jeff Durbin? Also looking forward to your series on hell. Any idea when that will be coming? Aloha from Hawaii. Ooh, Hawaii. Nice. Austin, me and my wife actually went to Kauai. And that was really, really neat. Um, so Calvinism and James White. I, at the moment, I don't plan on doing a debate. I would, I'm definitely considering doing a response video to James White and his video he did in response to me. He, on his on his dividing line program, I thought you know there's very specific points he brought up. I'd love to do a response, but it's just um, it's low on my priority list because dealing with Calvinism is really not very important to me. Um, although I think it matters, I just it's just I have so many other things I care more about. So eventually, <laughs> I probably won't do a debate because debates take so much time to prepare for, and I'm I'm investing my focusing my whole ministry on that topic. And I just don't care that much about the debate on Calvinism. Um, I know some people do, and that's fine. That's their ministry. I'm just saying for me, I don't think it's really my calling um, to focus on that. So just to be honest, I'd rather do a video on the topic of hell. Like that I'm more interested in, right? Here's a, a video. Here's a topic that keeps unbelievers from listening to us when we talk about Jesus because they have misconceptions about hell. Like that I want to talk about more. So that, that will come sooner, I can tell you that. Um, and then Isabella Broadbent says... What are your views on homeschooling versus secular education? Um, I don't, I, you know, I'm very favorable to those who are doing homeschooling. And I think that I wouldn't condemn a parent who, who sends their kids to secular education. And maybe I'm wrong here. I think it's up to the parents. Every, every like school is different. Every family is different. Every household is different and their abilities and their inabilities and their schedules. And so I, I just really say, you know, God give you wisdom. If your kids go to public school though, and you don't do anything to deal with the content they're being taught, especially in California right now, which is insane, um, then you're dropping the ball as a parent. If you don't do something at home to deal with the fact that they're in public school, then you're dropping the ball. Um, so I will say that, but but that doesn't mean you can't, you know, you can't actually send them to public school. May God give you wisdom with your kids to make the best choices for them and to honor Him in that. So. That's all. Thank you guys so much for being here. Um, I will uh, continue to produce some content coming up on the resurrection of Jesus and unpacking specific issues. Like I can't wait to do a whole video on the evidence for and against the empty tomb. I just want to unpack it and give it all to you, let you think about it. And then you can use that content when you're sharing with others. Maybe I can talk more about the bedrock th things and maybe give you some more quotes, off, you know, instead of off the top of my head for uh, scholars to support the things I've just been telling you. So uh, yeah, check out, if you, if you can, check out the debate with Apologia um, and be gracious in the comment section. You will find that on this particular channel, there's a lot of rudeness that's there. Just totally overlook it, man. Water off a duck's back, speak with grace and outreach to this community uh, with the truth of Christ. So Lord bless you guys. I've had a great time and I hope that you have a wonderful evening.